0: Um, Hello and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream show. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. Happy Saturday, everyone. Thank you again for joining us. Next Saturday on the live stream at 11 11 a.m. Pacific time, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time, we've got another lit manager Q&A with Zach Zucker of Bellevue. Uh, So if you're looking for a rep or have questions for one, be sure to stop by and say hello. And before we get started, although most of you still listen to the uh, audio version of the podcast, but if you are watching us on YouTube, if you do us a favor and hit that like button, we'd really appreciate it. And now on with the show. Last week we had on lit manager producer extraordinaire John Zazerni, um on, and now we've got his partner in crime, the other half of the dynamic duo, a screenwriter, TV writer, producer whose credits include the CBS series Training Day, deputy on Fox, and the just released Paramount Plus big budget actioner starring Mark Wahlberg and directed by Antoine Fuqua, Infinite. Live from the Aloha State, trapped in paradise, at least for a little bit longer. DJ Bam Boom himself, Mr. Ian Shore. How are you, Ian? You're well, Kevin. Thanks for having me back. Always. You're always, always, always welcome, and uh, I would talk to you every every week if we could. Um, no, you're a you're, you're blast to have on. You're so uh, forthcoming, and uh, you've got such great story and stories to share, so it's uh, always great to have you on, and especially now with your new movie, uh, Infinite, coming out. Uh, I... Those who have listened to the podcast for a long time have heard the saga of, you know, its supposed release and then the pandemic and then you going to Hawaii and, you know, so much going on uh, that it's, we followed you through all the sort of trials and tribulations of, of Infinite, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. You, you guys have, uh, have, have been there for uh, like the great majority of that endless saga. So how does it feel to, for it to sort of be over i mean it's you know they say you stop writing you stop working on a film when it's released not until then <laughs> right when it's out in theaters or out on it airs on tv then then your work is finally done so how does it feel to be for this how how long did you it's been like four years or something like that three years or something like that right i i mean it, no it's
1: it's been um uh it has been let's see here uh, it, I've worked on it for uh for seven years uh Second? like oh the, my yeah the, the uh the, the, the first time that I read the book and started coming up with a pitch to the movie was back uh yeah it was back in 2013 mm-hmm. and um I uh you know like back in 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 that you know like that that first go around uh you know came up with a pitch the people who had the, the who were in charge of the project didn't really go for it so you know uh I went my way, they went theirs. But one of the producers of the project came back around and found me and was like, Hey, you know, I still like your take. I still, you know, we get the rights back if you want to write it on spec. And so did that and, you know, had to put it away every time I got a paint gig. So, you know, three years later, I finally finished the thing. And then it takes another uh, couple of years after that to go through the development process and get a director, get a cast. We finished shooting it in, uh, December of 2019, uh, come March of 2020, we're just about to release our first trailer, and we're going to uh, premiere the movie in August. And uh, on the day the trailer was going to drop, March 15th, is uh, I get this email from Paramount saying, "Like, hey, there's a slightly bigger story in the news this week, so let's let's hold the beat on this this uh, this release." Uh, so after that, every, everything was in flux. And uh, eventually, it got moved over to to Paramount Plus, and uh, it finally came out uh, a few days ago. Yeah. So, in, in terms of how it, how it feels, I mean i i, I once uh, I once ran the LA Marathon, and um, the by by the end of that, like I I'd never run twenty six miles before. I, like the most I'd run was like twenty, and the last six, well, all I could feel was pain. Uh, mm-hmm. But then when, once I got across the finish line, like. Uh, there was this combination of relief and joy and uh, full-body pain uh, and a just overwhelming des- desire to eat a pizza and take a nap. Mm-hmm. Uh, hang on a second, my my wife is trying to get somebody out of the room. Hi. Uh, so um, and compare it to that. I mean, it, it, it's it's a giant bag of, of of mixed emotions because so much went in into that process. Uh, and I've I've never had anything done on this this scale before. Mm-hmm. I mean, prior to this movie, my most expensive movie cost maybe two and a half million dollars. Wow! Uh, you know, to put it in perspective, you know, Paramount spent anywhere between one hundred and thirty and one hundred fifty million on mm-hmm. this. So, uh, it's it's a completely different sport. Um, so, you know, the 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 emotional aftermath of that is is unlike anything I've, I've experienced in my life.
0: Yeah. No, I bet you uh, it is, especially, again, after all you've gone through. I mean, it's uh, pretty crazy. I mean, it's a huge film. I mean, you can tell. It's like those big-budget actors we were talking about, you know, Fast and the Furious or Wanted or, you know, Jumper, films like that. It's this big, you know, time-spanning, huge, huge film. Um, but
1: but if, if they ever reboot Jumper, I'm just throwing this out there. I really, really, really want to do that. Like, <laughs> that would be such a fun world to play in. I mean, like, uh, but yeah, like, like we were intentionally putting the movie in that type of space. Like, you know, there, there's there's of course a, a $50 million version of this movie. There might even be, you know, a $10 million, you know, sort of character-driven indie version of it. Um, but because the the source material offered us, the opportunity to go as big as we wanted, you know, because you have these characters yeah. who've been on for so long that they are, you know, almost superhuman. Um, I wanted just to see how big we could go, like how how far we could push it if we wanted to play in that sort of like Mission Impossible fast, mm-hmm. and furious space. Um, so, like that, that, that was a conscious choice while we were writing it.
0: Well, it definitely felt like it's a movie primed for not one. Standalone film, but something that could easily translate to a franchise, to a TV series—you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, the world is is so expansive. I mean, you could go—you know—very much like you'd said, like a, a Jumper or like uh, 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 Westworld or something like that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like like
1: like uh, it's it's something that's that's a huge sandbox to play in. Uh, you know, I could easily imagine this—you know—existing as. A TV show, like, mm. like, you know, if it finds an audience, then, you know, like, it would, you know, be interesting to see where the, this would go as a franchise, like, yeah. you know, exploring these people's past, they're like, you know, the, the side characters in this world getting to jump around in time, like, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of levels that you, you can play on there. Um, you know, it's just a question of not anybody's gonna see it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's we, we live in a very strange time where some big films especially on the disney plus uh uh, platform a lot of big movies are being released on digital they're not in the theaters which is interesting uh and i guess paramount plus is sort of taking that lead now it seems like warner's is still you know and a few other studios are still releasing in theaters but then some of them are going to digital in just a couple weeks so it's very odd the whole situation yeah we're sort of in this another world right now like
1: you know, I, I'm uh, like like okay. Just last week, uh, Conjuring 3 opened, and you know that thing made a ton of money, which is uh, incredible given the fact that like millions of people can watch it for free at home. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you you still had the the fans coming out and, and paying to have that experience in a in a theater, which almost makes me wonder if they left money on the table by doing that mm-hmm. that simultaneous release. Uh, but you know, it, it's it's so hard to tell at this point what's a what's a theatrical play and what's a streaming play the, the the lines are so blurred now
0: i mean infinite is clearly a, a theatrical play i mean it was obviously designed for the big screen i mean you can't look at that film the trailer of that film and say yeah let's just put it on streaming <laughs> uh but i so i have no idea what their calculus was behind that
2: Me but, either yeah, yeah. I, I have
0: <laughs> that, those are decisions that are way above my pay grade and right. uh, i you
1: know I really wasn't you know mm-hmm. the, like in terms of post-production or any of that stuff, that wasn't you know anything I was privy to. In fact, like the the last time I laid hands on the movie was probably two months before we shot it. Hmm. Uh, at at a, at a certain point, the production moved on with with other players involved, and uh, you know uh, you know Zach talked about this a little bit in his interview that uh, at a certain point it you know became other people's baby uh so you know i I guess the the big lesson i take away from that is like you know once a studio buys your script really the only thing you have control over is the quality of your next draft Hmm. right
0: yeah and i mean and some studios and filmmakers uh really work in tandem with the writer and then some just kind of do their own thing it's it's really you know it's it's an individual situation case by case basis
2: you know
1: I,
0: I, I do have to hand
1: it to to Antoine because uh, he fought really hard to keep me involved mm. as uh, you know, as much as he could until the end. The studio had other people they, they wanted to work with as we got closer to production. I think mainly because a hired gun is gonna have less possessiveness over the material mm. than the original writer. Uh, and you know when you need to make decisions really fast when a lot of money is at stake, uh, you if you're the studio you don't want to take the time that it's going to take to to deal with the the original writer who's going to have a million questions about why certain things are being done sure uh, so like uh you know like during this this process like i i think i i got taken off and rehired on the project two or three different times <laughs> and each time it was it was antoine bringing me back in that's you know, great to hear was, yeah so like i i absolutely uh, I am thankful for the fact that he uh, he went to bat for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, I I think he's a fabulous director, so I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear that that he wasn't a big jerk. <laughs> he was a, he was fighting for the right. writer. No, that's awesome. Uh, and you know, I mean, studio network executive, studio executives is kind of I mean, sometimes it's as simple as they have a friend or you know some writer that they just want to work with or if, you know, and uh, this is a great opportunity. Let's bring this other writer in, and it has nothing to do with you. Sometimes you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, like you know, I'm I'm
1: I'm working on something right now where like you know they're a they're, month out from production, and I'm I'm doing some some polishing on some set pieces for it. There's you know two other writers that have worked on it before me, and you know I I don't see me being there as a a denigration of the the earlier writers' work. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm just seeing that like you have a project where they need very specific almost micro focused things done to the script that are my particular area of expertise. So, you know, it's, it's like, if you, uh, it's no different than bringing in a specialist at at a, in a hospital as opposed to a general practitioner.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that I think emerging writers, uh, don't all, I mean, some of them do, but I, I think it's, it's, it's easy to sort of overlook the fact that, that writers have a specialty. You know, the writer, the, your branding is is what you're known for, and, and oftentimes they'll bring in different writers for different things. Like the old Quentin Tarantino cool pass, like uh, uh, Tony Scott uh, oh, yeah. used to bring him in all the time to do the cool <laughs> pass. Basically, literally pay him a million dollars, give him two weeks to rewrite a script, add in dialogue that just makes it feel cool and fresh and interesting. And that's yeah. what he would do, and that's what he was known right, for, right. right? I mean, yeah, obviously Quentin Tarantino is known for a lot more than that, but specifically sure. Tony brought him in for that reason. Period. And every oh, Tony yeah. Scott script, I mean, film. Oh yeah, like like there's all that like you can feel his fingerprints all over *Crimson
1: Tide*. Exactly. In, in, in fact, like like my, my favorite example of this is um, if you watch uh, if you watch *The Rock*, mm-hmm. um, you like like there like the. There are two credited writers on that a bunch of other people worked on it and if you watch specific scenes you can hear those writers voices like mm-hmm. for example, like I'm, I'm a huge scott rosenberg fan and uh all of nick cage's um obsession with music came from scott which you know right. makes sense because scott's a, a huge music buff and you know wrote high fidelity and created the tv show out of that and so on and so forth there's always music in his scripts like there's a reason why jumanji was called you know welcome to the jungle right uh, so uh, like all of uh, Nick Cage being a Beatle Maniac in that movie that, you know, that came from Scott. Whereas if you watch all of Ed Harris's scenes, uh, all of that dialogue with Sorkin, like, you know, that's that beautiful interplay between Michael Bean and Ed Harris when they're having their showdown and they're they're quoting Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, you know, like all, all of that is clearly, you know, pure Sorkinese. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's interesting to to watch these these giant movies and just see little spots where you can hear the voices of, of individual writers
0: right um, some if you guys are watching in the chat feel free to drop your questions and we'll get them for we'll start ha- and having Ian excuse me answer those questions very shortly but I did have a few questions that I wanted to uh, discuss with you and run by you uh, before that um, again the first being uh, infinite how we, we already talked about how it sort of was this marathon this long journey um you finally reached uh mortal <laughs> and <laughs> had to fight sauron and whatever uh you, you, you <laughs> it's you... a great metaphor <laughs> um and the relief i mean that it, it, it the journey is finally over um but uh first off i wanted to point out that it was cool for those of you that have have heard uh ian's story and have listened to the podcast and and seen uh a lot of both ian and john talk about the the production and the development of of, uh infinite but thing the the easter eggs you guys put in from treadway you know going you know getting the threatened to go back to bellevue i.e you know, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> the the boat was it the production company or is it the, the hospital? Um, and you know things like the Himalayan Journal, like Treadway's Himalayan Journal, because you know you would mention that you know that the book was originally found at some random restaurant or coffee shop or something. It's Kind of a hostel in Kathmandu. Ben, Kathmandu, right? Which is yeah. interesting. <clears throat> you know, so all that stuff that you know, we, I wouldn't have picked up had we not talked about it, right? Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. But I do want to ask you in terms of like being, you know, adapting a book, a novel into a feature obviously is a different process than writing a spec because you obviously have some source material. But you can't just transcribe for a book because there's lots of things in a novel that won't work in a dialogue and things like that. But also it's structurally very different. And there's things you want to leave in, things you want to take out, and it's just such a bar- big thing. So you're basically filtering through all this material and trying to figure out what will make an actual film and then inputting your own uh, devices that need to take place and, and whatever it is that needs to be done. So I wanted to say, what for you, taking a book and developing it into a, a, a feature, what is that process like?
1: Well, I think it, it's, it's different for every... Sure. For every project, right? Uh, you know, there there are certain books that are clearly designed to, uh, you know, to to be redone as movies. Like you know, you, you look at something like oh I don't I don't know uh, Ready Player One. I mean that, that's a you know clearly like cinematically designed book. Uh, whereas you know there are like compared to, let's, you know, compare that to say like, you know, the orchid thief, which became adaptation, like, you know, that, which is that, genius, sort of, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's, that's on the far other end of the spectrum where you right. read it and you go, like, okay, how the hell do you turn this into, into a narrative um, or how do, you, how do you turn this into a cinematic narrative? And with, uh, with the book, the reincarnationist papers, uh, the, it, it sort of landed in the middle where you had this, this core concept of the book that was clearly cinematic. Mm-hmm. It was clearly this big, Fun, interesting world to play in that offered you all just en- endless possibilities. Um, and then, in terms of the actual execution of, of the book's story, because the the, the book itself is, is so internal and philosophically complex and uh, psychologically driven, it's it's much uh, it's much darker than the movie. It's it you know it, it's I don't, I don't think there's a single freeway chase in the entire book. Not one exploding <laughs> oh, right. airplane. There's no Kung Fu. Like, you
0: know, like, like, so the,
1: the movie, and the book are extremely different animals because the author created this incredible world that, that I wanted to play in, but to do a completely faithful adaptation of the book would have required like an HBO series. Hmm. And I wanted to do like the summer popcorn tentpole version of the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you know that means a lot of deviations from the narrative right off the bat uh, it was uh it was a lot of me thinking about like okay how can i tell this story in two hours hmm. um what's what's the what's the fun way into this world uh how do i how do i make the world clear um how do like uh th- there are certain things that i had to invent whole cloth that didn't exist in the book like for example the the weapon that can imprison people's consciousness, uh, the dethroner, like
2: hmm. with that
1: thing, uh, I created that for the script because, uh, we have a world where you can't die, where, right. where, where, where death is basically meaningless because it's just, you know, the character hitting the restart button. Right. So what are the uh, stakes
0: for those individuals? Yeah, exactly. So like, it, it,
1: it, like every, you
0: know, almost
1: every big budget action movie you've ever seen, the stakes are always life and death, usually on, on a global scale. Whereas by the nature of our basic premise, death isn't a real thing for these characters. Mm -hmm. So I I had to, you know, I just start, but I just start the adaptation process by asking, okay, what's worse than death. Right. And, you know, I figured out, okay, being buried alive for eternity and being awake for all that is worse than death. Right. So that, how that thing came around and, uh, yeah, that
0: was actually a brilliant turn, which I didn't expect.
1: I, I, uh, I'm, like th- there was, mm. you know, obviously some things in, the, in in the script. Well, a lot in the script that didn't make it onto the screen. Mm. But one of the things that was in, in the spec draft was you actually get to see what it's like inside the the dethroned world mm. after somebody gets shot by this device. Like you, we've got a, a bit in the script where a character wakes up and they're in this like sort of foggy mm. glass cube mm. that they realize is essentially like a coffin. Right. Um, so it's it's like being in sort of sightless, soundless suspended animation for eternity mm. uh, you know because I'm, I'm severely claustrophobic so i was like okay what's the thing that scares me most i'm like oh it's fucking that like that is some black mirror shit right so uh, <laughs> like you know so that that was something that we we had to you know figure out in the room when i was developing it with, with, with john like okay how do you bring life or death stakes into this how do you bring global stakes into it because when you, you've got a, a movie of this budget size you need to have this massive threat that anybody on, in, on the planet can relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and out of that, you know, like, uh, you know, we, we answer the question like, okay, we, like if we've got a world threatening force at play here, why does the bad guy want that? Like right. what's, what's motivating him? And uh, one of the things that we, we came up with was that you uh, Anybody who gets reincarnated too many times, anybody who's been alive for too long, mm-hmm. eventually they, um, eventually they are going to get bored with it. Eventually, like uh, it's going to start becoming a punishment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sooner or later, if you repeat anything enough, it stops being
0: pleasurable. Like the Groundhog Day like- experience. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Like, our, our, our bad guy is basically Bill Murray towards the end of Act Two in Groundhog Day when he becomes suicidal, except his his uh, suicidal uh, tendency manifests itself in this desire to, you know, essentially murder-suicide the planet. Right. Uh, you know, he that, like, the only way he's going to be able to stop reincarnating is if there are no bodies left to reincarnate into. Mm-hmm. uh so that 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 for me felt like okay I've, I've never seen that before i've never seen a movie about a bad guy who wants to end the world because he's in pain
0: but his motivation for doing that i thought was strong because i thought well what is his motivation for doing it and it, it seemed like oh because things repeat because he's bored of life because he doesn't want to get but then when the lines of him like in being stuck in the womb and his memory being like he's Returns much faster than everybody else's, and stuck in the womb for nine months, not being able to move, but having all of your thoughts and memories, and being, and just being <laughs> trapped for nine months. Every time you you get reincarnated, which is which I thought about like that's terrifying. That's awful. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they they cut this line, but that he, when he's when he's delivering that monologue, he says
1: he's holding up the the, the throne weapon. He mm-hmm. says, "Do you want to know where I came up with the idea for this? Mm-hmm. Because you know he, he knows what it's like to be." buried alive like that. Right. It happens when his life starts. Uh, so, uh, it, all, you know, all, all of that stuff was, was things that we were coming up with in, uh, in the development process. And, you know, as those ideas led to, you know, their own sort of children ideas, uh, we wound up pretty far away from the source material.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I thought, cause I wasn't expecting as, that basically uh because i think that could would drive a lot of people sort of crazy so well, I thought...
1: yeah. you know I, I did some i did some research on this like you know how time seems to move faster as you get older yeah like uh you know uh, how when you're a little kid summer vacation seems to last forever and then you know by the time you get out of high school it goes by in a blank mm-hmm. uh you know, the, the reason for that is it's just uh it's our brain um, essentially paying less attention to the world uh, the longer we're around. Hmm. It's, it's why the return car trip somewhere always takes faster than the than going there because your brain is kind of in skim mode. Gotcha. Um, and so, but, you know, if, if time becomes less meaningful to you with, over the course of a single lifetime, imagine how meaningless time would become to you over the course of thousands of lifetimes.
0: Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, those are the. Anyway, without getting too much away <laughs> to the film, it was it was a lot of fun. So, um, let's get a few a few questions uh, from the audience here. Short kill seventy uh, two says hello hello short kill seventy uh, two. Ian, that seems like that would be quite daunting to see changes done to your script and brought back on. Oh yeah, I mean, it's.
1: Honestly, it depends on who was who doing the rewriting. Um, you know, there were a, there were a couple of, of writers on there who who brought in to do some scenes whose Stuff I Love and who, like, you know, one of them is, you know, one of my big writer heroes. And, uh, you know, seeing the, the work that they brought to was actually really pleasurable. I'm like, oh, wait, this guy, you know, he, he brought some great jokes in. Like, this other person saw a way into this character that I hadn't, hadn't thought of before. I can see why they hired these guys. You know, so that's, that's the best case scenario. And then mm. the worst case scenario is when you look at it and you're like, okay, what is this, what, what does this bring to the table? Right. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, once the, once the movie is on track to production and you realize you can either be the guy that solves problems or you can be a pain in the ass and, and, uh, and get cut out, uh, it, it behooves you to be the guy that solves problems. Right. Uh, like like for example th- there was a, a pass where the, the like the, the third time that I got brought back in my job was to essentially go through four different writers drafts take the scenes that i thought were working from those drafts and figure out a, a way to uh, meld them into the last draft that i did hmm. so it, it was kind of like a uh, like a like a frankenstein monster where you know, you've got you've uh, you know this thing from writer A, this thing from writer B, and this thing from writer C, like, and you have to to make them all into something that feels cohesive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I I've been there since they won with this thing. They figured like, okay, if anyone can help us uh, get this monster put together, it's probably that that first guy. So you know, they they brought me in for that, and by by that time, I I'd gotten to a place emotionally where I was like uh i i don't feel like i'm watching my work get vandalized i feel like i'm coming in help i'm coming in to help these people make their vision of the movie happen
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that's something that a lot of newer writers don't realize or understand necessarily that what's seen on the screen is often far removed because there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen And a lot of, like you had mentioned, piecemeal put together, unless your name is Woody Allen or Clint Eastwood or James Cameron or Quentin Tarantino, very rarely does frame for frame, (laughs) line for line appear on the screen as you intended. It's just a mishmash of so many people's ideas and trying to get together and put together the best story that you can possibly tell with all of these people having their input.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's true for like pretty much any large budget studio movie that, that's not, you know, made by, you know, Nolan or Tarantino or, or any, any of the, right. uh, the those, those writer director biggies. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is like once, once you're playing in a certain budget space, everybody starts to get extremely nervous on the studio side, uh, you know, because their jobs are at stake. So the way that they give themselves a sense of security is they, Bring in the smartest writers they know to you know kick the tires on the script for a week here, a week there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they could say like, okay, you know, we did our due diligence. We we brought in the people who are the best at this type of movie mm-hmm. to uh, make sure that the that uh, everything's is up to code. Right. Uh, it's uh it it you know, what is ironic is like well, yeah it it helps them keep their job. Does it Does it make for a better movie most of the time? Not really. I mean that's you know why people complain about studio movies feeling discombobulated Mm -hmm. um but it's it's a reality of, of the business that every writer who's working at that level has to has to recognize and has to play ball with
0: right and that's the thing is is the motivation for studio executives to make decisions is often generally speaking and it's not always the case but generally speaking has has as much to do with making a great film, but it's also as much to do with keeping their jobs and being able to justify it in the end, which is why a lot of these casting choices are made, which is why, like you'd mentioned, a lot of writers are brought in, which is why a lot of different things happen so that when, if the, if the movie is a failure, they can say, well, we have that big A-list actor. We brought in some of the best writers in town. There was no reason this should have failed. It's marketing's fault. You know, however they can justify (laughs) it and not get fired, right? Right,
1: exactly. In in a way, it's, it's, you know, it's the art of covering your own ass. Right. so the like I, I, I guess like um, when you uh, when you're making a big movie um, you are essentially putting yourself out there as, as an executive and saying okay I believe in this thing I'm taking a stand on this I'm, I'm committing myself to it I'm asking this corporation to commit millions of dollars to this thing and I'm going to to do everything in, in my power to make sure that it works um, because you only get to take so many big swings like that.
2: Hmm, right.
1: um, so, you know, I, I, get, I get why they do it. Um, like, I don't I, I think that these choices are being made out of
0: malice. No, not at all. Not at all. But I think it, it, writers, young writers, newer writers, especially would benefit from looking at it from an executive's point of view that very few executives get fired for saying no, right? They get okay, fired yeah, for green okay. for, for greenlighting a film that tanks, right? <laughs> right. Like, if, yeah,
1: if you green light something that's wildly expensive and bombs and like brings down the stock and, you know, puts egg on their face when it's time to give the quarterly earnings report, then that's your ass. <laughs> like, right. so they, uh, like, if you are a, a writer who, who wants to have complete control over your stuff, the best advice I can give you is uh, direct it yourself and make it so cheap that
0: nobody can mess with it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Or, or write a book. <laughs> or write a book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's see here. Not Available, that's their name, uh, screen name. Not Available says, hi all, congrats on the film, uh, Ian. Amazing achievement, which it is. It is. Just getting a film made shot, especially a big budget film and, and put on uh, the screen is a big achievement, so. We all I think not available is my mom.
1: What's that? I think not available is my mom.
0: Oh, well, there you go.
3: <laughs> Hi, Ian's mom. Um,
0: uh, let's see here. Um, Kapil Gatwai says, Hi, Ian. I wanted to ask about receiving feedback. My professors have sometimes told me to go in a certain direction, even though I felt those changes weren't necessarily my favorite for the script. But on the same hand, they have a lot more experience than me, so I feel inclined to change my decisions do you have any advice regarding this
1: yeah yeah and this, this is something that uh, I've, I've i've said on the show before and this is something I've, I've told writers when I've, I've taught classes in the past uh one of the best things you can do for yourself is to teach yourself how to view notes as a gift uh, because every good note makes your script better for free and the bad note teaches you how to find the good note hiding inside mm-hmm. it And the batshit insane note teaches you how to politely ignore it. Right. Uh, So, you know, for for this specific person with their question, uh, I would say, look, look for the note within the note. Like if if they're saying, hey, I want to see A happen, look for what's motivating them to say that because A might not be the solution. B might be. And, um, you know, that might be something that you are excited about writing rather than, you know, just, uh, you know, like just grinding it out and, and, and doing the work because somebody told you to because uh, like like it, even if you uh if you execute a note that you don't believe in and do it badly and the fact that you don't believe in it is manifested on the page mm-hmm. they're not going to look back at that and be like oh i shouldn't have given you that shit ass note they're going to look at that and say like wow you really fucked up my note <laughs> right <laughs> so uh, yeah, the, the, the best thing you, you can do is, is ask like, okay, what is, what is the, the need that's trying to be met with this note? What, what, what are they looking for? And what's a way to give that to them that I'm actually excited about writing?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Uh, Purple Pints says, was there a part of your script that you were especially thrilled to see in Infinite or any part that was written, edited out that you were disappointed to lose? That's a good question. That's
1: a great question. Um, I, uh, I so I I was in general excited to see uh, to see the set pieces because I, I I've been writing action my whole career. Mm. You know, I grew up obsessed with those kind of movies, and uh, you know, prior to this, nothing I I wrote really had had the budget to uh, to do that 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 kind of spectacle. So it was it was something that I've been writing these large scale specs for years and you know some of them sold but none of them ever got made Mm -hmm. I, I had all these you know dreams of you know crazy vehicular destruction and chases and sword fights and wild gunplay and explosions living in my brain for for you know the 14 years I've been writing and finally uh I got to see what that stuff looked like on screen so like that was that was definitely a treat for me uh in terms of like stuff that got cut I mean you know there's uh, you know, there's a lot of things from my spec draft and a lot of things that they shot that I thought were fantastic that, that didn't make it into the movie. Mm. Uh, I, I think the, the the thing that I was, that I had a personal connection to that I was very excited about seeing was um, there's a part in the spec draft that they, they shot where they, they go to the Himalayas mm. and they, um, they do this test with the main character where uh, to trigger a memory from an earlier life when he fell while climbing, uh, a mountain in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. They throw him down a chute in that same mountain. Uh, like they just toss him like into like a snowy gully and tie a rope to him so right. it, you know he stops before he goes off the cliff. Right. Uh, so they, they they you know went and shot this fucking thing. They they, they went to a uh, they went to a, an indoor ski resort in Italy and hooked up a wire to Mark Wahlberg and dragged him down a mountain for a couple of days. Right. Uh, so. You know, after all that work and time and money put in that sequence, I I was really excited about about seeing that, but more specifically. um, There's a a scene when they're up in the Himalayas when they're they're hanging out in a a tea house up in the mountains and. The the reason I I put that in there at that specific location is when I was 19 I was doing some traveling around the world and I did a, a trek to the Himalayas stayed in some tea houses while I was hiking up the Everest base camp. And, um, during that hike, like, like we were hiking up to Island peak, which is like 20,000 feet above sea level. Hmm. I got a uh, cerebral edema and almost oh. died. Got carried down the mountain by this, by this Sherpa carried me down like a thousand feet. And, uh, you know, until the point where like my, I could start getting oxygen into my brain again. And, uh, as a way to say thank you to the dude who saved me, uh, I went and lived in his village for a few weeks after the trek was over and helped, uh, helped dig up stones from the ground to build this bridge across a canyon that they're oh, wow. construction on. So when I was there with that guy, he told me all about uh, his beliefs and re- about reincarnation. And that's when I first started getting interested in the idea of multiple lifetimes, mm. so really re- infinite traces back to to my time in the Himalayas when I was 19. So getting back to the script, when I, when I wrote the the stuff that was happening up in that mountain range, uh, I put the tea house that I stayed in into the script and they actually recreated that set for the movie. Wow! So when I went to London to, to watch the movie being filmed, I got to walk into this room that I had set foot in, you know, 15 years before. Uh, they, it was it was like walking into a memory it wow. was one of the most real experiences of my life and so like the I movie. Was, yeah exactly it, yeah. exactly it was yeah it gets super meta so <laughs> uh, <laughs> the like because that sequence and that particular set had so much resonance to my own life and and to my own personal connection to the story i was excited to see that on screen and it, it was uh it was painful to, to see that not get put
0: in the movie yeah no i bet i bet it sounds like that whole thing of you uh being carried down the mountain and then staying in the that's like that could be its own movie yeah yeah i mean (laughs) i mean parts of it were (laughs) i guess but they were they were cut out let's see here um uh let's see karm says is there ever a right time to start looking for staff writing jobs i know you've written for television as well I mean, if that's what you want to do, then
1: any time is a a good time. I mean, uh, you know, like staffing season is pretty much now 24-7, 365, uh, and because there are so many new avenues that are are creating shows, uh, there's a a lot of jobs to be had, Um, so. They're shorter
0: uh, jobs. But they're more yeah are short
1: jobs for, for, for less money and right. uh, you know it, it's 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 a world that is still insanely competitive and, and, and hard to get into but uh, I would say if you know in, about what makes for a perfect time to to go for a staffing jam, I would say it's when you've got a sample that you yourself don't know how to make any better and that other people are responding really positively to
0: yeah 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 um... Ivan White says, was your screenplay optioned first? Um, can you discuss from option to buy? Uh, no, so, the, so
1: with this one, um, because it's based on a book, the, the book was optioned. Uh, John Zazierny uh, put up his own money to, uh, to get the rights to the book for long enough for me to, to adapt it. Uh, so you know, he poned up his, his own cash to, to get the book. I agreed to write it for free just because I believed in it so much. And, um, then once we had the, the spec draft done, um, we took it out to a bunch of different studios and Paramount came in first and came in really aggressively, uh, with an offer to buy it. Uh, so there, there was a, it, there was never an option with the script. It just went from being a spec to being a sale.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see here. Um, Divyanch Kulshretha. Kulshretha. Hopefully I got your name right. Uh, it says, congrats, Ian. Uh, well, there you go. Congrats. Um, shortkill seventy-two also asks, how many years uh, take place between the opening uh, Treadway's death until we meet Mark Wahlberg's character? Uh, it's however many years old Mark Wahlberg's character is. Uh, <laughs> I think,
1: you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how old he is. I mean, his abs look about nineteen. <laughs> but it, uh, in, like in the in the spec draft, like you know, it was written for uh, an actor in 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 their late twenties. Like it, like it was uh, uh, the the original incarnation of this character mm-hmm. was written someone a lot fringier, a lot uh, more inexperienced. Like you know, what, what's what's funny about like the the cast that we ended up with is that the original version of the hero was kind of written more in Dylan O'Brien's age range, like the, mm. the, the guy driving the Ferrari in the opening scene. Yeah, um, And so like my original thought was like, let's get like a, you know, hot up and comer for the, the the lead and stunt cast the the, the guy in the opening scenes. We're going to kill him five pages into the movie. So right. like you know, get a big movie star that we kill on page five and get somebody young and hungry as the hero to, to takes over the movie right uh, so like in, in in the spec draft the opening took place in like 1991 and the um uh, uh it jumps ahead to, to present day
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh the, the mo- in the movie judging from the looks of the cars were sometime in the i guess the early 80s maybe something
0: like that it looked like it yeah um Okay. Brendan UD says, Hey, Ian, would love to hear your thoughts on writing assignments versus writing on spec. What's your approach for both? It sounds like infinite was almost a combo of the two. Um,
1: well, I, I, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's accurate. Cause uh, you know, it was something that I tried to get as an assignment and failed. So I just wrote it on spec when, when I got my manager to secure the rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this is the, uh, the the big thing I, I can say is that um, there are there are writers I know, I know who pretty much you know will only do assignment work um, because you know it's a huge gamble with your time and your energy to write for free, uh, and the spec market is right now the worst I've ever seen it. Like the the like you know the last script I uh, I sold on spec uh, back in in twenty nineteen we took it out and sold it within like 48 hours of taking it to market these days the the idea of getting like a super quick sale like that uh with no attachments like with with no director attached with no actor attached uh that's almost unheard of uh like you know because of covid costs and and everything else the market is really really in a fear-driven place right now Mm -hmm. uh so it's it's uh so like spec writing has never been more precarious than it is in in 2021. Uh, so I, I definitely understand why why writers prefer to play the the assignment game. Uh, for for me the I, I learned a pretty important lesson like the first year of my career when I when I got my first agent like I signed with CAA and they basically sent me like just you know I spent the next year just getting shotgunned at different projects but like. Like, OK, going after this assignment this week, you're going to, you know, taking a pitch on that. Did they go for it? No. OK, here's the next thing. Like right. a year of my life, just like probably pitched on like 20 projects over the course of that, that year, got none of them. And all, all of those movies were kind of barely hanging on by their fingernails at the studio anyway, like cause none of them ever actually wanted to get made. Uh, they were not they're not a priority for anything. It was just
0: they were just the hoping agency. you or some other writer could re- rejuvenate them.
1: Right. Exactly. It was, it was just the the agency trying to make some fast money and trying to get me, uh, plugged into, into that pipeline where, you know, once you do good work on an assignment, they usually bring you back to work on more stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the lesson that I learned from all of that is you should only chase an assignment if it's something that you, that you love Mm -hmm. and it's something that you think you'd be perfect for, um, because, you know, that, that first year, I wasn't thinking about, do I like this? Is this exciting to me? Does this fit my brand? I was only thinking of, like, do I have a shot at this job?
0: Right. And it's, you know, it's easy to, to,
1: to come at it from, from that perspective, because of, like, when you're young and trying to break in, any possibility of a job feels like like a life changer. Um, right. But I, I've, I've found that you've got a much better chance of actually getting a job if you're pitching on something that you yourself personally love and are, are passionate about. Right that interfaces with your skill set.
0: And it's a lot like investing, the sort of golden rule of investing so you don't FOMO uh, your life savings is you don't look at it like investing or uh, writing assignments as as a cruise ship. Like once it's gone, it's gone. You look at it like a ferry. Like if you miss one, another one will be along. If you, you know, another one will come along. There's plenty of opportunities. So pick a good one. Right. yeah yeah ex-
1: exactly like like pick one that you are going to be okay with spending the next year to two years of your life working on if, if it's like a serious rewrite like that right like I, I, uh, I spent over two years doing rewrites on a, a, a science fiction movie at Warner Brothers a couple of years back and uh, I'm glad that the project uh, that required that much work was something that I was extremely into mm-hmm. if it was something that I was only doing for the money the the money would have stopped making me happy a few months into it and it would just become a chore so you know like like the best thing you can do with those assignments is, is think about like am i going to be okay with still working on this project a year from now that's right still bringing me joy
0: right right uh and that was from brendan uh brendan's one of our patreon donors so thank you brendan um Thanks, yeah, let's see. We got Todd uh, Klinger here says, dude, saw your food pics on Reddit. You're pretty good with the smoker. The stuff looks awesome. What's been your favorite?
1: <laughs> oh, man, my, my favorite thing to make at the smoker. Um, that is a great question. Uh, I um, my, my wife is from Kansas. And so every time I go back there, I, I've always got to get that, that incredible Kansas barbecue. Mm-hmm. And
0: What's your favorite?
1: Burn ends. Nobody, uh, nobody makes better burn ends than a couple places in Kansas, and I've been trying to like make learn how to perfect my own. Uh, so, like, uh, yeah, I, I love making like a good brisket and getting that that nice caramelized section mm. off there, and and uh, just making those little nuggets of gold. That's
0: that's my favorite. Right. What's your favorite Kansas City barbecue joint? I think. Um, you know, I gotta say.
1: I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, of arthur bryant me
0: too that's, yeah that's good
1: uh, that's 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 like my go-to like the second i get off the plane there
0: yeah yeah no it's good stuff um let's see here john z says hi ian who's your favorite manager named john Zalzerni, and why is this the case <laughs> i mean <laughs> there's a lot of competition for that
1: category uh you know really like what what I uh, what I like most about John is that I'm just he makes me feel charismatic and good looking <laughs> like I I feel like just you know like you know his lack of charisma like just makes me you know seem like more like a movie star when uh, when the two of us are in the room together and and that's just the confidence booster that I need
0: <laughs> hi John <laughs> um so let's see here. Um, not available again. Uh, hey, Ian, <laughs> I was hoping you could talk about your outlining and writing process in general. How much do you know about the story before you actually start writing pages? Uh, do you know every beat? Well, uh,
1: not, not every beat, but I know most of them. And, and this is why I'm glad that uh, the amazing John Zanzirni is in the chat, because um, I have my outlining process that I have because of him. Uh, like it, it was something that uh, I didn't really have a, a strategy for prior to, to working with him. You know, I, I might you know write like something resembling an outline, but I was still really figuring out a lot of my movies on the fly. Um, and you know, eventually after enough rewrites, they would they would you know become readable. But it was a uh, it was a more labor intensive process because I would like get lost in the woods more and have to go back to square one. Uh, with w- the process that I've, I've learned to do with, uh, with John is, uh, I'll sit down and we'll come up with a, a one sentence idea. Uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, like you hear a lot of talk about log lines and really the, the thing I've discovered is that if you have a strong enough concept that the log line writes itself, mm-hmm. uh, and if you if your concept is inherently weak, no amount of dusting it up is going to make for the log line strong. Uh, so w- what we do is like, you know, we will come up with an idea and see if we can get it down to a single sentence, like, okay, the movie is about this and we're just asking like, okay, is there a market for that, for that right now? Is that an idea that I'm excited to write? Is that an idea that interfaces with my skill sets, and my brand? Is that something I can picture the poster for, picture the, the trailer for, Can I picture a movie star in this role, Can I picture a director getting excited about it. Like, these are the kind of questions that we, we ask while we're vetting a script. Uh, or vetting a project idea. Mm-hmm. So w- once we've got that one sentence concept where I can pitch the idea to people and have them get excited about it just based on those 20 words, uh, from there, we expand that, that one sentence into like a page, just t- talking about the, the kind of broad beats of the movie, and the, the tone, the world, the feel, uh, that one pager becomes a five pager, which I'll take back in and workshop with, with Zhao. Uh That five page will turn into a 10 pager, workshop that's more. That 10 pages will become maybe 15, sometimes 20. And then finally, when, when that that longer document feels just like bulletproof, then uh, I'll go to script. Mm-hmm. And even within in the, the script writing process, it's, it's similar to the outlining because I don't write the whole script at once and then give it in for notes. I'll write the first 30 pages Turn them in, get notes, workshop it, fix it. Uh, write the next 30, you know, turn it in, workshop it, fix it. So by the time we've written one draft, it's kinda like we've written four drafts. Mm. Uh, and I, I found that like having a really strong outline makes it so that I uh, I have I've, I've already thought of the the smarter choices. Before we've even started writing the uh, the, the script, mm-hmm. you know I've, I've talked about like A choices, B choices, and C choices before. Like uh, with A choices being the thing you've seen before, or the B choice being the thing that you haven't seen but is wrong for your story, and then C being the right one. Usually, with a really strong outline, I, I've landed on a lot of C choices mm. throughout. It. Uh, so that uh, once I, I've I've got that. I still leave room for surprises, like, you know, I, I still can play within scenes because I don't necessarily know what a character is going to say next, but I usually know what they're going to do next.
0: Now, for your, when you're doing rewrites, when you're writing your third 30 pages, turning it in, getting notes, going back and, and making adjustments doing the second 30 do you actually go back and if there's any sort of major structural changes go back and write your rewrite your outline as well or because your outline is so solid you really don't have that issue and so most of the changes are cosmetic or limited in scope
3: i
1: i feel that you know if we if we hit a major roadblock like that mm-hmm. um I'll, I'll just write a new document that you know across the title page it just says here's how we fix this problem oh i see so like if we run into like a structural issue like that, that we didn't foresee in the outline, mm-hmm. then I'll give that its own specific document. But uh, you know, part of the, the reason why I have this process is uh, one of the first projects I ever collaborated with John Zazirni on was this Catamonic Cristo adaptation where I wrote 180 pages in my first draft, still wasn't finished with the script yet. <laughs> and uh, was just so lost in the woods that I, I brought it into him I said like, hey man, I don't even know what the movie is anymore i'm not close to being done yet it's over three hours long like what, what do we do so we threw away 160 of the 180 pages oh my gosh. First, yeah it was this is why you outline um, so just we kept the first 20 and then we rebuilt the movie from there we, we went we went back we, we uh we broke a uh, a new outline and we were able to to you know to get the movie done in a matter of months after that you know i've, I've already been working for a year right. um so and, you know it wound up being worth it because we we sold it we got on a blacklist we, we had some some interesting filmmakers attached to it for a while and and it, it, it definitely helped my career um but the the biggest way that it helped my career was it taught me how to outline and it taught me the value of coming in there with a really strong map
0: Mm-hmm. Rawson marshall thurber told me he once. uh the first draft of uh, Dodgeball was something like 180 pages because he didn't outline. And he spent months and months and months rewriting that thing because Dodgeball, you know, comedy, uh, should be 90 pages. Uh, Yeah, it was like 180 pages, something ridiculous. (laughs) Right.
1: What's, What's funny is like a lot of those, you know, like heavily improvised comedies, when they, when you have your like, you know, first cut of that, that they're, they're you know, sometimes three, four, four, five hours long, like a, a Jed Apatow movie, right. the, the first cut of that is is going to be like, as if the script was 180 pages. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: um, let's see here. Um, David Wales, uh, one of our great scripts and scribes mods says, could you talk more about the, your quote area of expertise? How early in your career did you define that? How did you figure it out? And when did you, lean into that how much of your career does that drive
1: that's that's a great question um i i think early on in my career uh i didn't i wasn't even thinking about what my brand was wasn't thinking about any particular area of expertise uh, because i didn't know what those was yet uh so a lot of my earlier career was just me trying out different genres and seeing what I liked uh you know over, like before I started writing professionally uh, I wrote like a drug movie I wrote a uh, a movie about uh, like a romantic comedy about a, a, a ska band it was the 90s were a weird time. Uh, I wrote a, um, uh, a a big budget sci-fi movie I, I wrote some smaller horror stuff uh, I, I wrote a really dark drama about a school shooting like I wrote, um, a historically based, uh, sort of tragic comedy about a mathematician in the 1600s. Uh, I, you know, I, I did a lot of stuff that, you know, from my standpoint now is wildly off brand. And it was because that was me figuring out what my brand was and the word brand can be scary for writers. Like, you know, they think like, Oh, I I don't want to be pigeonholed I don't want to be known for, for just one thing. But I think the more useful way to look at it is your brand is just what you love and what you're good at. Um, because if you do this for, for long enough, you're gonna see that you're attracted to certain types of stories and that certain types of stories get you excited enough that you're gonna write them for free.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, if you focus on that particular type of story for long enough, then you get very good at telling it and you start to understand how those stories work on a micro mechanical level um and so then out of that 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 love comes your your expertise uh so for for me like once once i started writing professionally like the, the the first script i broke in with was this uh like thriller starring teenagers that was pretty (laughs) like it's an extremely fucked up script that like i i wrote to be that way because i wanted to make some noise and uh you know i read it now and i kind of cringe like it definitely feels like you know uh you know some young punk flipping off the camera Mm uh but um because that thing sold i spent the next couple years pretty much only getting offered thrillers starring teenagers Mm. and this is back in 2007 there's no streaming yet and uh once uh, you know Shia LaBeouf grows up, they stop making movies star- starring teenagers. So at that point, I had to you know I had to rebrand myself and say like, okay, what else am I passionate about mm-hmm. writing? What what else brings me joy? And you know I'd always been a huge genre guy, so stuff like sci-fi, action, and horror were all things that excited me enough that I I would write in those areas no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, like once I pivoted into writing those types of movies. Um, I started to get more granular with with uh, the, the areas that I most enjoyed writing. So like, for example, I love writing set pieces like that's the easiest part of my job. I, I, I love, you know, writing like, you know, suspense and uh, scare pieces and horror. I love writing, you know, car chases and action movies. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm really attracted to those types of situations. Um, and so because I've made that my focus. That means that, you know, now when I I get hired for a job, they're looking for that particular area of of expertise. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's the key to it. Rather than looking at it as just being sort of typecast, you know, pigeonholed into a specific genre, you're being hired for your expertise, right?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, if, if you have done something long enough that you get good at it, that means that you probably really like it. Right. Uh, you know, is it like, like when, <laughs> I guess when people think about branding and pigeonholing, they're, they're almost imagining a scenario where they write something that they don't personally love or believe in, and that's the thing that, that gets them more work. And then the next thing they know, they're, they're stuck writing like, you know, all of this hacky bullshit when what they really wanna be writing is the things that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. I found the reality to be that the the stuff that you're passionate about leads to more work in that area. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, honestly, if you were wanted to have a sword made using an example from uh, <laughs> infinite, <laughs> would you hire a sword maker or would you hire a, a potter or, you know, a sculptor or something, you would hire somebody whose expertise is in that field that, you know, you want to build. Right.
1: Yeah. Or, 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 or even more specifically, would you hire a blacksmith hmm. or would you hire a blacksmith slash potter slash gardener? Right. Uh, you know, slash winemakers, uh, you know, slash uh, gymnast pole vaulter. Right. Uh, <laughs> so like, like, like early on in my career when I was writing in all those different genres, I, I genuinely thought for a while, they're like, I'm a guy who can do anything. Look at right. me. I, I can, I can write in all these different genres, but yeah, I couldn't do it well. Right. Uh, you know, I, I it wasn't like I was writing good dramas or good romantic comedies. Sure. You know, they were done, but they so like like I was basically trying to be the you know blacksmith potter gardener right. you know jack all trades guy when nobody wants to hire that, they want to hire the guy who knows how to do one thing well.
0: Right. And even if and if you have the sort of resources that these studios do, do you want to hire to make your samurai sword? Do you want to hire a blacksmith who also makes horseshoes and he makes whatever, or do you want to hire that guy who knows how to make Japanese samurai? Do you want to hire H-
1: Tori Hanzo? Yeah. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly. You want to hire the best if you have that resource and you have the ability. Why not hire the best rather than, oh, yeah, well, that guy could make a sword, but, you know, <laughs> who knows how it's going to turn out. He's not going to fold the metal whatever a thousand times or whatever it is. You might wind up with a letter opener. Right, exactly. Yeah. We are killing it with this metaphor. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. uh says, uh, can you share more about your process for taking all these different scenes from different writers and combining it with your own work to make a cohesive story? I've written a few good scenes, but overall scripts I've written so far suck pretty bad. Oh. Uh, As a beginning writer, um, how can I improve at typing or tying scenes together in a sequence or overall cohesive story?
1: Okay, so I, I think we might be talking about two different things here because w- when I was talking about you know doing that frankenstein draft I, I was using scenes that other writers had written and, and that's a pretty situation specific thing i mean right. that's that's not something you're really doing when you're first starting out but i think in, in terms of this person's question i think what they might be saying is that they have individual scenes written within a script that they like but the connective tissue is not there it, it sort of sounds like yeah of... okay um you know in, in a way i actually relate to what this writer is doing because um, I don't write sequentially a lot of the time. I, I write the scene I'm most excited about writing that morning when I wake up. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, like if if like I, I'm not feeling the energy coming out of the last scene that was written, and I don't feel like sitting there trying to you know build up enough electricity that it'll start when I start typing, I'll instead just you know draw a line of periods hit, you know, interior wherever day and jump right into the part that feels exciting to me. Like if I'm, uh, it's it's like, you know, it's essentially eating dessert first, but uh, what it means is that you get this this great momentum from, from writing the part that you're stoked about writing. Mm-hmm. And out of that momentum, you can, you know, it carries you into the next scene or maybe it'll trigger something that will help you go and fill in the blanks. Um, so I think that their instinct to write the stuff that they're excited about writing first is actually correct. I mean, if it works for them, great, because it does work for me and it works for other writers I know. Mm-hmm. In terms of, I guess, the, the filling in the blanks, the, the connective tissue stuff. Um, what, I, what I find is that um, if you're having an issue connecting the scenes, it might be an issue with the protagonist. Uh, you know, if, uh, if you have somebody who wants something really badly and who is actively going after their goal, then the connective tissue is that person is, is your hero. Um, like, uh, you know, if you watch something like, like Nightcrawler, for example, who, you know, it's got one of the most active protagonists of, of any movie I've ever seen. Uh, Jake Hall is in constant forward motion through that whole movie. And, uh, it, it's, um uh, well, you you have you know whole set pieces where he he's you know going after this goal or or that goal. Uh, even the connective pieces are all about him laying groundwork to get what he wants next. Um, so if if you've got a, a character with, with a strong goal, then the the, the scenes can they essentially connect themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it also goes back to your you know whole point of outlining and things like that. So. Oh yeah, through, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, like, like, you know, if 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 this is if the writer who asked the question is is working without an outline, then yeah, maybe the the other reason why they're they're getting stuck is is because uh, once you've got all the cool scenes down on paper, but but nothing to connect them, mm. uh, what roadmap do you have to go back to 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 fill in those blanks? Right. So,
2: yeah, if you
0: if you don't have an
1: outline, start one.
0: Right. Um, Let's see here. Um, Kapil also says, do you have any tips on pitching non-traditional scripts? Uh, Not super art house, but not traditional, traditional Hollywood. Do you, do studios even consider anything like that, or is it just better to try to direct them on your own?
1: It's totally better to try to direct them on your own. Like the, the window of what a studio is looking for right now has only gotten smaller and smaller and smaller over the years. uh, And it's, it's like it's not a world where where you go to make those kind of niche projects. Right. Uh, if if we're talking like in an in indie financier, then that's that's a different ballgame because um, you know companies like like you know A twenty four Film Nation they're uh, they're still making those more personal niche uh, idea like, like I guess character driven projects. Um, or that they're, they're they're still open to non traditional ideas. If you have something that plays in that more experimental space, even if you you know get lucky to enough to have a studio buy it, the first thing they're going to do is try to make it more like something that already exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's a reason why you don't really see anything experimental coming out of the studio pipelines because they're they're already terrified that they won't be able to sell their non experimental stuff, right? Uh, So yeah if if you've got something that uh feels very different from from things that you you, that are coming out in theaters or that are coming out on streaming your best bet is to see if you can make it yourself and uh and raise the and raise money for it through an independent financier uh because you know there's there's enough avenues out there that there's room for all different types of stories it just that the, the studios are, are not the place that are really making those right now.
0: Right, right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Todd Klinger says, do you still write specs? If so, do you vet them first with your awesome, wonderful, best manager in the world, you know, the one who doesn't uh, like road trip scripts?
2: <laughs> is this Zal is this again? No.
0: <laughs>
1: no Wait, I'm sorry. Repeat the question one more time. I was, I was just too busy laughing at the, the part.
3: Uh,
0: uh, do you still write specs? If so, do you vet okay. them with your awesome, wonderful, best manager in the world? You know, the one who doesn't like road trip specs. Okay. Maybe you'll be the one to break him out of that road trip spec. Uh, <laughs> just like, know. Uh,
1: <laughs> you know, I I absolutely do still write specs. I, I just finished one um, a few weeks ago that we're, uh, we're partnering up with a producer on right now. Um, and then, early when I was talking about, you know, the state of the market, I'm speaking from experience because, you know, the last script we took out before this, we were able to, you know, sell within a day or two. And, and with this one, the approach is totally different because it's like, okay, we, we, we got to put together a package for this thing. Like, you know, we're, we're uh, we need to find the right producer and they need to find the right director. And we possibly need to get the, the right actor on this because right now the people with the money only want to, uh take like make stuff they don't want to develop anything they just want to go and shoot uh based off of whatever package you bring to them hmm. um so yeah just 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 finish that spec we're trying to put a uh, package together for it right now i'm outlining an idea for the spec i'm going to write after that um and everything that i do i vet weeds out like <laughs> we put, we talk an unhealthy amount uh and uh You know even if i'm just you know delivering a a pitch on a project or i'm um coming up with an outline i'll i'll talk to him about that like he's he's been in the trenches with me on on uh every every spec every assignment every pitch uh like if it's if it's words on paper he's got eyeballs on it at some point
0: you know how that meme of uh couples goals or whatever that people have <laughs> that when, when you know I, or, or i wish that uh you know I, I could find somebody who will look at me like this person looks at whatever it is they're looking at that meme well you guys have that with the relationship uh, uh, excuse me representation goals right the relationship you and and, and john have together that's pretty funny uh,
1: yeah but he, you know he was he was my uh you know he was a my producer first, my then you know became one of my best friends, and then after that became my manager. So we, we had a, you know we had a unique path. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know for, for for anybody that you uh, who represents you and who's going to be giving you notes on your projects, you're revealing something about your own soul to this person when you turn in a piece of work. So you you want it to be somebody that you can trust with that that intimacy.
0: Mm-hmm. That's why I think also when uh, writers ask me, is it better to have a rep, any rep, rather than no rep at all? And that, it's a tough question because it's obviously good to have somebody that can't submit your material if you find something on your own happen to, or it will will hopefully submit you for things. But at the same time, finding that right manager, that right connection, that, that somebody you can trust and be friends with and, and uh, really have that great relationship with is, is difficult, but it's, if you can find it, it's so much more rewarding and so much more uh, uh, beneficial for both parties involved.
1: Oh
2: yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: That, that's, that's absolutely accurate. Uh, the, uh, you know, when, when people ask me like, you know, is it like, is it better to have a rep than no rep? Is it better? Like even if it's somebody who doesn't really get your work or right. isn't the ideal fit for you, the answer that I always tell them is that, uh, Having somebody out there stumping on your behalf uh, and getting your work out to the town, even if they aren't the perfect fit for you, it's better to have them than not. Because uh, if they're able to to get you work, they might grow into a better fit for you, or you might grow into becoming the type of writer that can have your pick of the litter. You can go around and and take a a bunch of meetings with different managers and different agents to see who you click with. Mm -hmm. But when you're first starting out, you don't really have that kind of leverage you kind of got to dance with the one that brung you. so uh the the answer i would give is if somebody believes in you enough at the beginning of your career when you're before you made them any money that they're going to represent you go with them and know that it can always evolve into something more or you can always trade up if you if you get to that level
0: Mm -hmm. yeah or if it just doesn't work out for whatever reason yeah yeah
1: yeah exactly like uh the (laughs) It, it's it's always better to have somebody else recommending the writer's material than the writer themselves. It's like right. <laughs> it just it it, gets, it comes out of that. It, it's uh, you know it's like <laughs> it's the reason why you don't see pull quotes from the writer on the movie poster. Right.
0: Um, Brendan Udy says thanks, Ian. Really appreciate the insight. Well, thank you, Brendan. Uh, John, John says, "This is the way." Uh, <laughs> let's see here. Um, another question. Uh, oh, a 010101 has another question. Sounds like it's important to get skilled at quickly writing one sheets, two sheets, and treatments, etc. Is that right? Should I practice summarizing movies or something?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, you know, one one thing that I wish that I learned in film school because I didn't realize so much of my career is going to be dedicated to this but a ton of your time as as a professional writer is going to be spent cracking takes it's going to be uh you know coming up with like a few paragraphs of your specific way into a story Mm -hmm. When, when a you know when a studio hires you to adapt something or hires you to um to do an assignment or when you get called in to pitch on something what they're really asking for is is your unique perspective on the material uh, you know, they're they're looking for a a writer with with a point of view and the ability to execute that. Uh, so like, you know, even right now, um, you know, I I think in the past 12 months, I've probably had to, you know, crack a take on 15 different projects. And it, you know, uh, it wasn't that I, I necessarily like, you know, went and pitched on, on all of these, It was just me sitting down and be like okay is there something here do i you know do i have a way in on this is is there a version of this that i'm going to be excited about waking up and writing every day Mm -hmm. um and the the faster you are with with cracking and take uh the better because they're also going to you know want you to write that fast Mm
0: -hmm. right uh let's see here um Kapil has another question. You talked about active protagonists and having a strong goal. How important is it to have a strong goal? If you have a protagonist who does have a goal, but isn't taking steps towards it due to internal issues, psychological conflict, then is it a good idea to focus on why they aren't pursuing the goal or failing at it? Or is it just better to find a story where the protagonist is more active? That's a,
1: that's an interesting question. Like, uh, essentially we're talking about the difference between an active and a passive protagonist Hmm. and passive protagonists are, are incredibly hard to, to make work on the page
0: and on the screen. Um, But the internal issue, psychological conflict could be part of that goal. Couldn't it?
1: Sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of of an example, like, uh, you know, if, um, I'm trying to think like, if, if we're talking about a, a movie where somebody wants something very badly but uh, can't get a, out of their own way, due to, or they're, they're dealing with some kind of mental health issue or something psychological that's preventing them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I guess the, the, the question I would ask is, how is that struggle manifesting itself on, on the screen? Is it resulting in interesting scenes? Is it resulting in, in a propulsive narrative? Is it you know is it making the reader want to turn pages?
2: Right. Because if it
1: is, if you find a way to do that, then great you know, absolutely, absolutely stick with that. Um, you know, if, if you think about, like, this is a, a weird example, but, uh, you know, if you think about a movie like Remains of the Day, where mm-hmm. you've got uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, who has, you know, who's in love with this, this woman, but cannot express himself because of his station in life, you, you know, they, they were able to wring so much tension and heartbreak out of that uh, very internal conflict. Uh, you know, it certainly helps. that It's a merchant ivory movie of one of the best actors of his generation performing it. Um, but like, like I've, I've, I've seen that work, but in, in terms of, if, if you're a writer trying to break in the, the easier way to set yourself up for success is to write a script that shows how, that you know, how to do, do the basics that mm-hmm. shows that, you know, how to, uh, write a hero that wants something really badly, that uh, they are trying to achieve in, in every scene of the movie, and dealing with with the obstacles in, in their way, and that's usually a, a more external thing since film is an external medium. Uh, so I, I, I would say like, <laughs> see what, what kind of responses you're you're getting from this particular script. Like if uh, you know if, if people are saying like I I don't feel like the main character does enough in this movie, then you know. It, it, it might be time to you know to go back to the drawing board with it, but if you know if it's something you're able to pull off, then that means you've got a very specialized skill set.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Purple Pines threw out Fight Club as their example for it.
1: Oh, okay. So, yeah.
0: so with that, we got this. Oh, huh, it's interesting. So, hmm. It's not the question <laughs> asker. It's it's someone <laughs> suggesting. Uh, oh yeah. yeah okay. okay.
1: So like. I, that, that is an interesting
0: protagonist situation of course
1: right uh, since it's two people that turn out to be one, one person right sorry for spoiling that for, for anyone <laughs> <it's> you haven't <laughs>
0: seen it by now i
1: think uh... <laughs> yeah uh, right so and that that's a, a movie where okay so i guess ed norton's goal in that movie is is to i guess break free of this this humdrum corporate life mm-hmm. that he's entangled in this is back when you could be really upset that you're like a white dude with a nice job and a cool apartment
0: right and ikea furniture uh yeah i i
1: could i could see how like um the his goal is more internal than that this is somebody who's who's trying to break free of a a society but they externalize that struggle in a very cinematic way he does it through fighting and through destruction
0: Mm Um, so we're running short on time. Do you have a specific card out? It's been about an hour 20. We've got a few more questions going here. I got, I got plenty of time. Okay. Um, but if you have more questions for Ian, please drop them. Uh, we're going to keep going here. Uh, purple pints also asks, how do you and John Z pick your circle of trust that he spoke about previously? What skill sets do they have?
1: Uh, that, that's something that, that, John picks. I mean, that's, that's more of a, a question for him. Uh, but I, the, I think what he does is he, uh, you know, he has writers whose notes he trusts uh, and who, um, who, you know, g- generally people who gravitate towards the type of script that's uh, that's being sent out for notes. Uh, like, you know, if, if he's got like a horror script, he'll ask like his other horror writers to, to help vet it, but not exclusively them because I, uh, you know, not every executive that gets it is, is necessarily going to be, like, the, the biggest fan of horror. Sure. Uh, so, you know, it, it's I, I imagine it's important to, to hear from people who love the genre and people who are more ambivalent about it just to see if it's working on a story level.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Kapil says, that was super helpful. Thank you. Um, thanks for your question, Kapil, as always. Uh, short kill 72 uh, how has audience short attention span, i.e. YouTube, social media, TikTok influence how fast you have to deliver exposition uh matrix seems like an art film now compared with recent action movies uh i mean does it come into play when you're writing
1: i mean i i have terrible adhd and so i uh (laughs) i my my stuff tends to my my scripts tend to be extremely fast-paced because of that Mm um and i'm allergic to exposition, which you may not have guessed from certain things about my last movie, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> oh God, anyway, I'm not even getting into that. Um, the, uh, so for, for me, like, like because exposition looks goofy on the page to me, um, I'm, I always try to find ways to, to try to do it visually or mm. through suggestion um, or inference. And, you know, when all else fails, stick it in, di- in dialogue. But I'll try to uh gussy it up with with jokes and you know uh flavor with the characters and uh asides and and you know ways to to, to root it in in emotion like um the um, basically if, if you can make the exposition entertaining if, if it has to be dialogue then just do everything in your power to make it entertaining mm-hmm. uh, it, I, in terms of like people's short attention span i I'm not, you know, but I I don't watch a lot of YouTube. I'm not on TikTok. I, you know, my understanding is that, you know, like people's attention span is is becoming, you know, more fragmented and, you know, getting down to like, you know, 10 second long videos. Uh, So I think in in a way that actually uh, presents an interesting challenge to writers um, in that, okay, you you need to uh, get whatever information is vital to the story across in a way that uh, is so invisible that it feels like it's part of the story uh, and it's helped propelling the narrative along uh, or you need to uh, build it into the the, the visual storytelling of, of, of whatever piece you're doing uh, you know it, it's it provides a, a challenge when you know that your audience is only going to give you their their attention for 30 seconds at a time and you have to keep re-earning it mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, like for, for me, like, like you know, I love that movie, uh, The Mitchells versus the Machines. Like, I think, you know, Lord and Miller are geniuses and have, like, pretty much everything they, they touch is gold. But when I was watching that, I also recognized, like, okay, this movie is, is clearly aimed, it's, it's aimed at everyone, but it's aimed specifically at an, at an audience much younger than me because right. of how I was overwhelmed by how busy it was, how there was, like, you know... Text all over the screen and and uh, you know frames within frames and and you know sudden like stop motion freeze frame shit like you know wow. it it sort of felt like things that, that you might see on 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 YouTube or, or or TikTok even though it's an animated movie right and I was like oh wow if if that's uh if that's the future and you know the the kids watching this are able to process this avalanche of information uh flying at them at high speed for the course of of ninety minutes then uh, the rest of us are going to have to adapt in our storytelling.
0: Right. And it's sort of like the, the uh, what was that movie? The Fifth Element, maybe? But like the Blade Runner-y kind of worlds where you see like millions of electronic billboards all over the place. And you think, well, that can't happen. And yet it's it, we're transitioning towards that where you just get so <laughs> much stimuli all over the place all the time. <laughs> um,
1: oh, yeah. Well, it, it's The thing that Blade Runner got wrong is it just, it's not like we're... Uh, surrounded by giant towering screens on, on the hub of buildings that, that we're carrying around those screens in right. our hands and staring at them. Right. Absolutely. It, it's, it's the same level of, of, you know, of visual overstimulation. It just happens to be portable. Right.
0: Right. So you can't escape from it anywhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, the thing I'll say also about uh, what was it something uh, I, cause I saw that animated film. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, oh, names the uh, machines, yeah. Machines, yeah. Uh, you were at least you were never bored in it, you know. Um,
1: oh yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm and I'm not saying that the uh, that that stylistic choice is a bad thing. No, I'm saying that like that that stylistic choice to me is is a a harbinger of, of where we're going right. at uh, with, with like this this you know younger generation coming up and making their own content. Right. Uh, I, you know, but I, I remember when, like when MTV first premiered, all the the older generation filmmakers were decrying how they cut too fast there's there's like you know it's a bunch of you know just sensory overload like you know i can't even tell what's going on here whereas you watch those early music videos now and they just seem like almost like art films and how slow they are
0: right (laughs) well and it's also funny if you watch something like citizen kane for example with long takes and you now you're just like what is going on? Why are we just on this long shot for you know, a minute and a half and he's just <laughs> doing a monologue and I don't yeah. understand why is well, nothing yeah. happening?
1: Well, yeah, one, one of the things I, I learned in, in film school is that, uh, like if you, um, if you're channel surfing, mm. uh, or if, if you, if you were like, if, you know, you're, you're looking for, for something to watch, uh, the human eye like we'll start to get uncomfortable if a frame is held for too long. Mm. But part of that is, is just our own conditioning based on what we're used to seeing. You're seeing something where there's a cut every second, every two seconds, then something where there's a cut every 10 seconds is going to feel glacial to you.
0: Sure. Absolutely. And I think it was funny because sort of Tarantino brought back the long take, right? Yeah, He'll, He'll hold on a shot for a long time but you're entertained because his dialogue is so snappy
1: yeah yeah ex- exactly like uh you know the if, if you are you know a good enough storyteller if you're good enough with character and dialogue uh you know you're you're able to to hold the audience's attention for those those longer takes just with what you're having your characters do and say
0: right uh, let's see here. Not available. Says Ian. Could you talk about your onset experience with Antoine and Mark? Was there a lot of collaboration during production, or did you take a more hands-off type role after you finished the script?
1: Uh, I I was only out on the set for a couple of days, and it was just me getting to you know come say hi. It was a set visit. I, I wasn't the onset writer, uh, and you know pretty much. Uh, you know, six weeks before production, uh, I, was, I wasn't involved with it at all at that point. Um, so, uh, once the, the movie was in, in production, uh, you know, I got to, you know, come out and watch them shoot the, uh, the climax of the movie. They had this insane, uh, like, plane cabin on a gimbal that they were making spin around like a washing machine everything was padded inside it so you've got these, these actors getting tossed around in there like laundry and uh, I'm just watching this massive machine work and hundreds of people around me So like that was pretty magical getting to see that happen uh, you know they they were scrambling to finish the movie at that point so uh, my my interactions with with Antoine were pretty limited you know, I got to you know I got to meet mark between takes and <laughs> he was uh, he was in the middle of getting his back worked on with one of those uh, massage guns. Mm. Um, so, you know, I go in there to meet him and he's like, hey man, how's it going? And I was just like, <laughs> does, does his voice always sound like that? He's, he's like, oh wait, no, he's got his, he's getting his back massaged by this gun that's make, messing with his vocal cords. Uh, <laughs> so like, you know, I just, uh, I, I talked to him for a second, I'm like, so, you know, how's the shoot going? And he's, he's like, well, we've spent the past week getting tossed around inside this airplane cabin the week before that, you drag me down a mountain attached to a wire. And in the next scene, they're going to stick me in a big tank of water and drown me. So uh, thanks for writing this role. Yeah, exactly. I, I just—I didn't think about the amount of physical abuse I put our main character through and thus the actor through it. Like the, the scene when he's inside that drowning tank. I, I found out later that they only had enough hot water for one take. So like all the other takes after that first one, he was in there in like wow. freezing cold water. But then again, you know, Mark does like cryotherapy, so you know he should be used to that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I got yeah you know, I got to you know just say hi to him and meet some of the other actors, and it was just cool being on a set where you're watching all of these hundreds of people pouring their efforts into making your crazy ideas into something real. Um, but I you know didn't have any you know particularly lengthy interactions with the people in charge yeah
0: and you should have told him uh you should be used to uh the jumping into the uh cold water being dumped on cold dumped cold water dumped on you from perfect storm right Uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) old hat uh let's see here um Kapil says what was the best writing advice you've received so far and if you had one piece of advice for up-and-coming writers where the industry is seemingly evolving faster than ever before
1: best piece of, of writing yeah. advice I've gotten um, the yeah uh, you know, th- th- this is a this, this is something that um, my uh, a guy named uh, Peter Gamble. He's a writer who I wrote uh, 1031 with and Mm. wrote some other stuff with. He he was actually my my freshman year professor at USC and eventually became buddies and then writing partners. Um, This is is something that that he talked about um, in class that I I just never forgot. Uh, He was talking about when when you're approaching your characters, approaching them from a place of empathy and from a place of positivity and you know, he was talking about that for even your your, your yeah, do it for your hero, heroes, do it for your villains, do it for your side characters. Uh, and there's a very specific reason for this because um, if you are able to approach your characters from a place of empathy, it means that uh, you are understanding why they make the choices that they make. Uh, if you're coming at the room from a place of judgment you're not really examining why they do what they do or where their behavior comes from. And that uh, manifests itself on the page with, with one dimensional characters. Uh, so like uh, in everything that I do, I do, I'm always looking to create uh, that balance of, of positive and, and negative traits within the, the people I'm writing, because that's what, what keeps them interesting to write. Mm. Um, like, uh, you know, one exercise that I, I do is I'll uh, I'll look at a character and I'll try to describe them using only positive terms. And then I'll look at that same character and try to describe them using only negative terms. And if there's sort of an equal amount on each side, then I know I've got somebody interesting to work with.
3: Oh,
0: um, kind of a cool like, litmus yeah. test.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, like if you look at like, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter, you've got a guy who on the positive side is, he is intelligent he's charming he is well educated he has impeccable taste he's very polite um and on the negative side he's a fucking cannibal (laughs) um, that
0: takes quite a few boxes right there
1: yeah exactly he's a murderous psychopathic uh cannibal so uh anyway you know because there's that that balance of positive and negative he becomes this really interesting character and uh I I try to you know to to form that that empathetic connection with with everybody that I'm writing on on, on the page, um, and that's uh you know that that's that's made that's made a big difference mm-hmm. in in my storytelling. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, advice that uh, that I could give to uh, to any up and coming writers, um, it it really goes back. To this is this is. <laughs> I might have gotten asked as something like this on the last show so uh, forgive me if I'm repeating myself but uh the the best advice that i I can give is something that i i uh, I saw Tarantino say on the uh, the true romance uh writer's commentary he he, uh, he was saying you should always be a little bit embarrassed and afraid to show your script to people because of how much it reveals about you hmm. and I thought about what he what he meant by that. And what I took away is that uh, it's really easy to, uh, to, to to write a script and just fill it with things that you think are cool or that you think the market wants. And, it, you know, it might be fun to read. It, you know, it might get the, the job done. It might even get made. But it, unless you've put something in your own heart of it in there, it's not going to be remembered. Hmm. Um and uh, I, I guess, like you know, when when I read a uh, when I read a script, I can always tell when, when the writer's faking it, and I can always tell when, when they're coming from a place of of truthfulness when when it comes to the, their own inner self. Like, mm. uh, you know, does does this feel like it, it came from like a real place of of joy or pain or uh, of, of trauma or of obsession? Like. Uh, you know, that to me the, the, the definition of bringing on to the work is is that ability to put some of your own heart into into whatever story you're telling.
0: right no absolutely. And it seems like the more you write, the more experience you have, the more of yourself your inner self gets into your your work and the more you do and the better you get at it, the more cognizant you are of what you're putting into it of yourself. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's 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 something that like uh, it it it
1: all comes with you know with just time and repetition. Yeah. Uh,
0: let's see here. Um, Purple pints. What are a few scripts or films you think have some of the best or unique exposition?
1: Um. Well, I think. Uh, I think Mad Max: Fury Road is is an amazing example of this because it has no exposition. <laughs> it has like a little bit of a voiceover in the beginning, try, like that you know the studio put in there to try to connect it to the other films. Mm. Um, but everything in that movie is just done through visual storytelling on the fly. It's just you know they're like, okay, how do we how do we build an entire world where nobody talks about the world that they're in, and it's just wall to wall mayhem. <laughs> uh like there's there's zero expository dialogue in 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 that movie so like yeah that's that's one example there um i mean i uh, like i I think the the uh the matrix did an incredible job of of, uh, of putting us in a situation where we the exposition is something we're eager to hear because we have so many questions that need to be answered. Like the entire first half hour of the movie is a series of what the fuck moments where you're, you're wondering what is happening in this movie, why are the, why is everything so weird, what's going on? And by the time Lawrence Fishburne shows up and starts giving you answers, you're on the edge of your seat because you need to know this stuff. Um, you know, it's like if the movie had just started off with Keanu waking up in the Matrix or you know in the real world with Fishburne there being like hello welcome to the real world here's everything that's happened you know you would have been bored stiff but Mm -hmm. because uh it's this like delayed orgasm of information that you're getting where it uh it it all works um another uh you know another thing that i I think about is um if you look at um i'm trying to think of like uh like there are are certain movies I, i watch where um they, they find ways to um, to use visual storytelling to to get uh, to get exposition across like like for example um, I, I this is this is a, a weird choice because it's I don't remember a lot else about the movie but I remember being very impressed with this moment uh, the first moment in JJ Abrams super 8 uh, it's a shot inside a factory where um, somebody's up on a ladder and they're changing uh the a sign that says you know like like number number of days since last accident they they, 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 like they changed it uh it to um i think three like at that point it's been like so you realize okay three days ago something horrible happened right right um you know it's like uh by by doing that visually, as opposed to having somebody say, well, three days ago, my wife was blah, 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 like, uh, like I, it's choices like that, that I'm always looking for when it comes to exposition.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, let's see. Uh, David Jaffe says the symmetry in Ian's room is so pleasant. Uh, no, it is, it is pretty (laughs) pleasing, but, but it's not, it's not your, your home you're visiting, right? No, this, uh, this is just my rental house. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're coming back to L.A. soon. You're in Hawaii, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is pleasing, though. The symmetry of the two doors behind you. and all that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although I am disappointed. The last few times we spoke to you, you were outside. And so it was nice to get oh, yeah. some of it's, the... Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's raining and uh, there's a group of uh, of golfers out on the golf course who uh, are, like,
1: hooting and hollering every two seconds. So uh, I'm hunkering down inside. Nice
0: uh let's see here uh todd Klinger. what haven't you achieved yet that you someday hope to
1: <laughs> where to begin uh i would um i'd like to get a studio movie made that gets released in theaters um you
0: almost a- you almost had it with this one except for oh, that darn oh- pandemic
1: <laughs> yeah yeah uh, that would be uh you know something that that has a you know uh something that has a premiere or something that like you know I, I you know can show up there with, with my friends and like you know take over an imax theater and, and mm. just uh you know spend those two hours having the images wash over me like that would be that's that's high on the list um i would uh i would love to uh, play more in the tv space like I've, I've never i've never sold a tv show um and uh, you know, to be able to create something long form like that, where I spend multiple episodes or you know, God willing, seasons with mm. with characters that I created, that would be a dream come true. Uh, and you know, the, the really, the, I guess the, the, the last thing is um, in everything that I write, there's always a lot of my personality and always a, like a lot of my my past and like little little bits of of uh, of you know my own. My own truths like smuggled in there no matter like if it's a big sci-fi and action movie a horror, whatever uh you know there's always those little chunks of myself that get hidden inside the movie um but what i haven't done is i've, I've never written anything that is absolutely just a, like a, a personal story
2: hmm. uh,
1: something that that is uh that is really human level uh something that uh is deeply intimately connected to my own life uh yeah, you know, my one of my favorite movies of of all time is uh, is almost famous, and uh, I would love to write something like that, like so, something that is maybe not completely autobiographical, but something that is unmistakably about a piece of my life. Right. Uh, I just you know I need to go out and do something interesting first. That's yeah, that would help.
0: I don't know. You inserted the whole Himalayan uh, Himalaya story, <laughs> the village, and all that kind of stuff that didn't end up making the final cut. So you have at least input a little bit of your biographical aspect. Yeah. But, uh, it just didn't, for whatever reason, they'll have to be on the uh, the uh, behind-the-scenes additional footage of, of the, on the Blu-ray or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll see if any physical media ever gets made of this movie. Yeah, that's true. Although <laughs> nowadays be. they just
0: put them on, on YouTube. So I think oh, yeah, yeah. It. So <laughs> it, it, it'll, it'll surface somewhere. They're always looking for content. It'll appear somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, a few more. So if you have any que- last questions for Ian, please drop them in because uh, we're a minute, an hour and 50 minutes into it. We've got a few more here, though. Uh, let's see. Purple Pines. Do you think studios now underestimate their audience and therefore require extra narration? We were talking about that earlier. And self-exposition, or oh, tell exposition, versus the show-like Matrix, uh, MMFR, uh, et al. So make writers cut.
1: Oh, um, yeah. The... Studios are, are terrified of the audience being lost for one second, so they they do all kinds of hand-holding that might not be necessary.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the uh, you know the, the, what they'll do is they'll they'll test a movie with with a with a test audience. They'll get note cards back saying like you know what parts did you like, what parts did you not like, what parts were unclear, and then they'll make decisions for post production based on that response. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll do reshoots or they'll re-edit the movie to try and do another screening to try to get those scores up. Um, But uh, because studios are releasing stuff for you know not just for uh, for American audiences but you know for audiences all over the world, they're immediately terrified that certain things aren't going to translate, certain things aren't going to be clear, that uh, that the audience isn't isn't following what's 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 happening, and so. Uh, a lot of times what you see a, a studio do with, with a movie is that they they overcorrect.
0: And I have to say also, having worked in that on that side of the business in terms of market research, um, if there's a sort of, I don't want to say a battle, but a, a disagreement between filmmaker and studio, like the studio wants it a certain way for whatever reason, and the filmmaker wants it a different way, well, when you're testing a film, especially when it's someone like Antoine Fuqua, you know, who has a track record, he's you know, he's a known A-list director. Uh, it's something that the studio doesn't necessarily want to push, what they'll do is they'll make it known to the market research company. You know, we really think this, and the market research company is getting paid by the studio, so they'll be sure to sort of frame it in a way that they can come <laughs> to the filmmaker and say, hey, look. You know, this number of people get confused. We really need to do what we were suggesting. It's not just us saying that; it's the audience saying that. And then the filmmaker would be like, "All right, fine, right?" Yeah, yeah.
1: Like, like you know, once you get to a certain level, your movies don't get tested anymore. Like, you know, like if if you're like Chris Nolan, they're not testing your movies. Um, sure, but but uh, you know, for, for like basically everybody else who's operating below that actual line, like you know, ninety-eight percent of the filmmakers, uh, that that testing process is just part of the reality. And most of the time, that's a, a situation where the house wins. Like occasionally, um, occasionally, like, like the, you know, the, the, the filmmaker will, will double down on their vision and say, like, you know, like, okay, we'll test your cut, we'll test my mm, cut, yeah. we'll see if one tests higher. Like, okay, going back to Mad Max Fury Road, they tested a PG 13 cut that the studio wanted and an R rated cut that the filmmaker wanted. And the R-rated cut scored higher. Like people wanted, you know, a hardcore Mad Max movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, that's that's one of those rare occasions where uh, where the 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 filmmaker wins out. But usually, the the person you know paying for the testing gets test results that they want.
0: Right. Right. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Uh not sure you're familiar with the current landscape, but do you have any advice for getting an agent manager with no credits? Should I even bother with my query letters and cold emails? Uh, no available, not available. Excuse me. Ask that.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I would, uh, I mean, the the way that you can, uh, you know, get representation when you, when you're first starting is if you've got a really good script with a really good log line and, uh, a, you know, simple, polite, clear query letter, hmm. uh, then, you know, that, that, that can open doors for you. Uh, the, uh, if, um, you know, if, if you're sending out a query letter that, uh, or, or if, if you're sending out a, a log line to people that, that uh, you know, people are just not responding to, it, it could be something on a conceptual level that people aren't, aren't connecting with. Uh, so either uh, the log line itself needs work or maybe the concept needs work or this particular project might not be the calling card script that, that breaks you in and it's, it's, and it's time to write the next one. Uh, but uh, I've seen querying work with writers. I've seen writers break in by putting stuff on, on, a, on, on the Blacklist hosting site. Um, and th- those, those traditional methods uh, can still absolutely work uh if, if you've got the
0: if you've got a concept that people get excited about mm-hmm. uh david wales said i would love to see ian's almost famous now i don't know i'm assuming he means your your personal story but maybe yeah, he yeah, means yeah. your take on almost famous doing a remake. <laughs> I don't know. oh god yeah it suddenly has like i don't remember this kind of like so many stabbings in this movie now. <laughs> Was there this much gunplay in the original? Right. Oh, car chases. I don't remember that. Um, Funny. Um, uh, Purple Pine said they should have tested Tenet first, or should have tested Tenet, which is funny. No no comment. Um, Kapil, thanks a lot for taking the time to answer all the questions. It was super helpful and insightful. Um, And... uh... Yeah, and then Purple Pine said, test audiences, I was part of the test audience for Daredevil, the R cut with Affleck, and their PG-13 cut completely removed how he figured out Kingpin, a uh, face poem. I don't, I never saw that original Daredevil movie. Uh, yeah, I, know. I never
1: saw that either. I, I, I've seen the Marvel show, but uh, right. I, uh, I sat that one out.
0: Um, and Purple Pine adds, would you write again in the infinite universe if asked to do so? oh totally uh
1: i <laughs> i would love there for to you know for there to be an infinite universe but uh you know we'll see
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, um but, you
0: know, it's a world i'd love to go back to yeah no i mean it seems like it's ready made for that kind of thing so yeah you think uh well let's hope uh so i think that's it for it's we've got almost two hours so i appreciate you taking the right. extra time to stick around yeah yeah, um, absolutely. Follow Ian on Twitter if you don't already. Now that it's reactivated, at Ian Shore two hours. Um, as always, my friend, it's good, great to have you back on. Um, good luck with Thanks the move that. back to LA because I know you're coming back on Tuesday. Uh, I'm sure, you have a lot to do. How long you've been there? The whole pandemic, right? Uh, no, I've been been there since October. Oh, October. Uh, since, okay. So that's that's pretty good then. Um, yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. Spend the uh, the winter in the. In the the fall out there in spring here now in the summertime you're coming back to LA so that's good yeah yeah um so thank you all for listening it's been part of your Saturday with us and we'll see you next Saturday at 11 a.m to Pacific uh to Eastern excuse me 11 a.m Pacific to Eastern for another live stream Q&A with lit manager Zach Zucker uh thank you everyone have a great weekend and we will see you next time all right take care